Hey everyone, back again. Today I'm going to continue on Marx's Capital, that is the Marx's Capital train, here with book two or volume two, The Process of the Circulation of Capital. Now, how I'm going to do this is I'm going to break this down into four parts. So I'm going to do four parts that are going to cover the three parts of this book. Now, the three parts of this book are titled The Metamorphoses of Capital in Their Circuit, that's part one. Part two is The Turnover of Capital. And part three is the reproduction and circulation of the total social capital. So I'm going to cover these three parts in four parts. Now, what that means is that this first part here that I'm doing is going to cover part one of the book. The second and third parts that I do are going to cover the first and second half of part two. And then the fourth part that I do is going to cover only part three, and that'll cover the whole book. So I'm doing three parts or four parts to cover the three parts of the book. Now, before jumping into it, if you want to follow me anywhere other than here, you can find me on Instagram at theory underscore and underscore philosophy or on Twitter at David Guineo. If you're new here, welcome. I'm David. I try to explain philosophical texts and ideas in a way to make them accessible to you. So if you're new, like, share, subscribe, tell your friends who knows they might get a kick out of it. If you found this on YouTube, you're going to be able to find it in podcast form where there shouldn't be any ads. Or if you found this in podcast form, you're going to be able to find me on YouTube where I sometimes release videos, which is fun as well. If you want to help me out, do all those things like share, subscribe. You can help me out monetarily via Patreon or PayPal, but obviously no pressure. If you're just jumping into this now, that is Karl Marx's Capital Part 2, or Volume 2, I should say, then just know that I've covered Volume 1 in its entirety, and I've done a number of other episodes on other important concepts that Marx gives us. So you might want to go check those out first or just read the books. That would obviously be best, but we don't we don't have the time for that. We don't often have the time for that. And for those that are familiar with the text that is uh, vol uh, volume one, just know that I'm going to cover key terms again here. So you don't need to go back and renew your knowledge. I'm going to situate all the new ideas within the broader uh, the broader scope of the capital trilogy, if I can call it that. So yeah, without further ado, don't want to waste any more time with that stuff. Let us jump into the second part of capital here. Now, the complexity of this text can't be understated. And one of the difficulties that arises when coming to present this text is that Marx makes heavy use of mathematical equations to demonstrate not only capital within a certain industry, but how that capital circulates among other industries as well. And it is very difficult for me to convey that because it's almost impossible to just be listening to numbers thrown at you and to actually follow what's going on. So for that reason, what I've done is I've minimized to the best of my ability the equations necessary in order to understand. And instead, I have focused on the conclusions that he makes. So for an avid listener, someone very curious in what Marx has to offer, this might be limited to some extent because I'm not going to provide the entire mathematical proof for what he says as he does. I am instead going to provide his conclusions with some basic rudimentary mathematical equations that are easy to follow in order to get the point across. So to get the full experience, you have to go and look at his charts. You have to go and look at his equations. But I just want to stress that you don't need to. Uh, I'm going to give you what you need in order to take away from this. But if you want that full experience, you got to go and check out his actual work. Now, this book starts, like with many others, with the preface. 
And for those that don't know, this book was released after Marx had died. So this book is a compilation of his notes and other writings that Frederick Engels put together. Now, this presented an issue for Engels because these notes were not necessarily always clear. And Engels was forced to kind of piecemeal this together. So at times, this book is quite hard to follow. And there are quite a few moments where there's a footnote added by Engels where he says that Marx contradicts himself here or he uses the wrong mathematical equation or for whatever reason. Anyways, um, it makes it very difficult at times to follow. And at times, it is very, very repetitive. So one of the complexities that comes out of that is that it's difficult to really know when to pay very strict attention to the text because uh, very important moments will come out almost, uh, will sneak into the text in points that appear to be a repetition of what had previously been said. So with that being said, I had to read every single word here very carefully of this 600-page book in order to make sure that I didn't miss a central or key point. So of course, I will not then relay all of the repetitive stuff. I'm just going to present to you the key points. So this starts, in, or at least Engels makes this all clear in the preface too, where he says he was confronted with a difficulty in putting together this text, and that he did very little to actually change the content of the text. In fact, he says of the 600 pages, maybe a total of 10 pages are Engels' words. And there's one point where Engels has to step in and say that Marx did this equation wrong, and in fact it should be this, but the, the result is still the same. In any case, that's what uh, we have here. So then in the preface, Engels addresses the charges that Marx's uh, idea about surplus value wasn't actually his, that he actually plagiarized it. Specifically, that he had plagiarized the idea of surplus value from someone named Rodbertus, who no one knows of now, except maybe some historical economists or econ uh, historians of, of economy, but this is totally unfounded. So this belief is largely influenced by the idea that any and all state intervention is socialist, which is a problem in terms of the history of economic thought, especially socialist, uh, socialist thought. So socialists before uh, Marx and those after him came to associate any kind of state intervention with socialist. But of course, this is just a kind of utopianism. It doesn't actually address the underlying conflicts and contradictions that are going to be found within capitalist production that are going to remain whether or not the state has complete control over those operations. Or, sorry, I should say, at least uh, if the state intervenes in those operations. So Marx had never really read Rodbertus. He had a kind of faint knowledge of this guy and his idea of surplus value. But Marx actually criticized him, or Marx criticized him for failing to differentiate land ownership and ownership of capital. So uh, owning land doesn't make you a capitalist. What makes you a capitalist is when you earn revenue that you're going to transform into your own um, means of production that are then going to expand and then make you more capital. So it, it is a never-ending sequence. Now, in order for this to actually be done, to kind of qualify this, you need wage earners that are going to work for you, whom you can exploit to extract surplus value from them. Now, Rodbertus claims to have been the one to discover surplus value. So surplus value, to be very brief, is the value that is extracted from real living labor, that is human wage earners, that is above and beyond what they are being paid. So you pay a worker, let's say a worker at McDonald's, $80 a day. They work for eight hours for 10 hours. Uh, they work eight hours for $10 an hour. They make 80 bucks. But 
they've earned the company a, a profit of 90 or they've earned the company 90, which means they've earned the company $10 profit. So that means that in that situation, the worker has earned more for the company than the company has given them back. So they've been exploited. Now, Rodbertus did not come up with this point. In fact, these points can be found much before Rodbertus, much before Karl Marx. They are found in Ricardo. They are found in Adam Smith. So Engels just addresses this to say that Marx didn't plagiarize anything. These ideas were long, existed long before this dude stepped on the scene. Rodbertus, that is. So that puts us here into part one, the metamorphoses of capital and their circuit. So here we're going to get a lot of repetition from the first volume. And here he's going to elaborate on the process through which capital earns itself more capital, how it actually exists as capital to make more money for itself that'll go into production. So the traditional sequence goes as follows for anyone who listened to the first volume. You have money and you take that money and go to the market and you buy a commodity. So now you have, let's say, uh, a shoe. You bought a shoe for $10. You can then turn around to another market and sell the shoe for maybe $12. Now what you have done is transformed your $10 into $12 as though by magic. Now, what I just described is describing mostly what probably a merchant does. Someone who doesn't actually have uh, workers, have has like industry or has the means of production. So a capitalist will come along and say, okay, Maybe I can buy um, a new piece of equipment for my business. So I go to the market and I say, or I buy a $100 machine. Now I use that machine to earn me even more money than $100 because you have to make profit on top of that. So what you have effectively done is you have just turned through the production process, you have turned the $100 that you've spent into $110. Now this has happened because you've put this machine in tandem with real living labor that you were able to exploit and extract more from than you were giving back. You can't do that with machines. And this is an idea that goes back to David Ricardo as well. You can't take more from a machine than you've put into it. So if it costs $100 for a machine, you are essentially assuming the labor theory of value. What you are saying is that that machine is gonna transfer $100 worth of value to the products that it makes through its wear and tear. As the machine deteriorates, its uh, value is gonna be transferred to the products that it makes. Now, the reason that it has to be that way is because you can't actually be competitive if you are just gonna raise the price of things arbitrarily or say that a machine is actually worth more than it actually is. What that'll do is it'll actually gain a single person maybe a little bit of wealth but it won't be sustainable in the long run it won't actually accrue into more capital but for more on that definitely check out the first volume and the episodes i did on david ricardo oh and i should say i've done episodes on adam smith and david ricardo as well so you can go and check those out so the process money to commodity to more money or m c to m prime m to c to m prime follows three stages so the first stage is the capitalist will buy this commodity, let's say this machine. And in the second stage, they're gonna put that machine to work. They're gonna put their productive forces into work. And in the third stage, the capitalist is gonna sell whatever product they make for more money. So they have acquired now M prime. M 
has been transformed into more of M. Now he breaks down each of these stages. So in the first stage, where the capitalist uses money to buy a commodity that they're going to turn into capital eventually, they're going to put into production, that commodity can assume two forms in the capitalist paradigm. It can either be in the form of labor, where you're buying labor from workers, or it could be like a machine that you buy. So that capitalist is either going to buy labor, which is a commodity, sold by the, the laborer, or they are going to buy the means of production, another machine maybe, that is being sold by another capitalist. Now in the total scheme of things, they need a balance between both. They need both to buy the means of production and the labor, because they can't actually earn more with just one or the other. If a capitalist has laborers without any means of production, you can't actually put them to work because they need uh, they need equipment, they need materials to actually transform into new products. And if you don't have any of that, you're just going to have a bunch of people sitting around not earning you anything. Whereas if you just have materials, you're not going to be able to actually extract more uh, value out of them because the materials are only going to work for their what you've paid for them. They're only going to give you more than what they've uh, cost. They're only going to be, sorry, they're only going to give you what they cost. So a proper capitalist will buy uh, a machine that's $100 and say, okay, I need to cover the cost of this uh, machine over 10 years, let's say. So $10 a year of my profit needs to account for that cost of that initial machine and so on. So you need a balance between means of production and labor that is going to work on those means of production. Now here we are presented with the mystery of capital that is going to run through the course of this text, where where does the commodity or the money that the capitalist uses to buy a commodity come from? Where do they this initial sum of money come from that they can use to enter into the capitalist uh, game? Because capitalism implies in order to be a capitalist that you already have capital on hand, but that of course. Uh, presupposes that there has been the capitalist mode of production. So it seems as though capitalism always precedes itself, like it has a history that always implies more of a history. Now, the idea of primitive accumulation accounts for this to some extent, but primitive accumulation is only one part of the equation, where if somebody has a lot of money, let's say a king or royalty in pre-capitalist society, in order for them to become capitalist implies that there is a market out there of other capitalists. So it's almost as though capitalism just fell on the scene, like in one fell swoop, it just appeared, just poofed into existence. And I know there are other historical instances that contributed to this, but this is one of the mysteries that haunts this text in how capitalism actually gives way to its own possibility, to its coming into existence without it already existing, unless of course it already existed which is the paradox of the entire thing that's going to run throughout the course of this text. And we get this too in Adam Smith when, at the beginning of The Wealth of Nations, he's describing the way that the division of labor is the source, essentially, of, uh, of advancement of uh, the capitalist form of production. But of course, to have the division of labor implies that you've already divided up the means of production so that people can work in different parts of things. But how do you have the means of production in such a way, a very comprehensive, intricate industrial system, unless you've already had the division of labor. So it's like a uh, what comes first, the chicken or the egg type thing. So because capital 
or capitalists are going to buy commodities in the form of either the means of production or labor, this attests to something of a transformation of the organization of humans and their relationship to labor. Where at a time, humans and the means of production kind of went hand in hand. But now, in the form of commodity production, they can assume separate forms, where labor is itself a commodity that is separate from the means of production. Now, capitalism operates by putting these things back into relationship with one another so that they can be, uh, the laborers can be extracted or surplus value can be extracted from them. But it is not a harmonious relationship between them where people are just working with the tools at their disposal for their own needs to satisfy their own, uh, what they might need to survive. Now they are doing so in order to earn less or to do make less than they're actually producing for somebody else. So capitalism then, and this is in Marx's words, produces not only commodities and surplus value, it reproduces, and on an ever-extended scale, the class of wage laborers themselves. It maintains and produces and reproduces wage laborers and capitalists to a never-ending scale, or to a never-ending uh, degree. So that was the first stage. They buy a commodity as labor or the means of production. Now, production can occur. Now we can enter into the productive process. So now that the capitalist has the commodity in the form of labor or the means of production, they have to put it to work into production. So production is necessary uh, on a large scale. It, it can't be done uh, in, in, in small ways or else they won't be able to actually compete on the market very well. But additionally, it has to occur to such an extent that it produces what the workers are going to need to survive. So capitalism needs industries that are going to produce enough food, shelter, all the necessities of life for their workers to actually live or else the whole system won't be sustainable. So in order for the uh, normal wages or the real uh, equilibrium to occur between wage earners and capitalists, capitalists need to provide the means that the workers are going to be able to live. That means giving them the absolute minimum they'll need to be able to go home, eat, rest, and come back the next day to work more. So whereas the capitalist process looks like this, at least at this stage, it'll get complicated as we go on, it looks like this where they have money to buy a commodity to earn more money, for the laborer, it instead looks another way because they have instead a commodity, and that commodity is their labor power that they sell for money, which they're going to use to maintain their commodity that is labor power. So their process, instead of looking like M to C to M prime, looks like C to M to C, not C prime. They aren't earning more of it at the end of the day. Now, in an interesting moment, and there are lots of these throughout the text, and this is born out of the fact that these were notes, uh, you know, so he doesn't necessarily develop certain ideas quite as much as he could have because he didn't have the time to. But he says that commodities aren't actually specific to the capitalist mode of production. Commodities actually largely predate capitalism in the form of what people needed. Uh, they assumed that form. It's just that they were not acquired with the intent of earning profit off of them on a mass scale. And this is on page 120 in the standard Penguin version for anyone who needs proof of that claim. So we're still here in the second stage of production of this M to C 
to m prime. And in the production process, it produces surplus value almost by magic, where things attain more value than they actually have on the market. That is, they go for a price that has less and less of a relationship from the value that went into it, if we understand value as human labor. So that puts us here into the third process, into the third stage, where we now have sell it, we are now selling that commodity that has been transformed. We've transformed raw materials, production, uh, labor into a commodity. So this is like a transform thing in itself. It's kind of like a C prime, a transformed commodity that we are now going to sell for more money than we initially put into making it. Otherwise, we wouldn't make a profit. There's no incentive, right? So for a commodity or money to increase in value does not mean that its absolute value hasn't necessarily increased. Instead, its relative value may have increased, which is to say that there isn't more labor going into a thing to make it more expensive. It is just rising in its nominal dollar value. So in his words, he says that the magnitude of its value compared with the value of the productive capital contained in it before it was transformed. Or at least that is the case when it only its relative value has increased. So for example, the rate of exploitation. If the rate of exploitation increases, if a worker is paid $50 for a day's work that earns the capitalist, let's say $100, so the capitalist has now earned $50 of surplus value on top of the $50 that they had to pay to the worker, then exploitation is 100% in Marx's world. So $50 spent on the worker that earned the capitalist an extra 50. So there's a one-to-one -one relationship, and he says that that's a exploitation of 100%. Now that means that the very process is, is founded on magic, really, in that more value is able to be extracted from something than actually exists. Uh, you are able to make more cake from the material that you make with the cake, which would be totally mysterious if that actually happened. You can't actually produce more out of nothing, but in the capitalist mode of production, somehow that is what can occur. So that was an elaboration of the three stages that went just to repeat as follows. They have money that they use to buy a commodity as labor or as the means of production, and both, because they need both, which they then put to work in production that is going to produce a new commodity, C prime, that is going to earn them more money, money prime. So they have at the end that commodity capital as the commodity that they're going to sell, and that they're going to sell to earn what's called money capital. More money that in the expanded process of production, of reproduction, they are going to put back into production to expand it to then earn even more capital. But we're going to get to that at the end of the book. So here we have been presented with three forms of capital. There is money capital, commodity capital that come out at the end of the production process, but then there's also productive capital. Production that is amplified to some extent or that is uh, used to produce more than what was put into it. So this all comprise, these three capitals comprise industrial capital. The entirety of industrial capital is comprised of productive capital, money capital, and commodity capital. So at the end of the three stages, we are left with commodity capital, which is then sold to be turned into money capital. But at that point, they stop being commodity capital and money capital, or in other words, 
the embodiment of the valorization of capital, that is the process of something becoming more valuable. At that point, they then just become commodity and money again, or at the very end, they just become money capital just becomes money again that can then be put back into the market. So there's an, a process, a cyclical process here where commodity capital through the whole process of production and money capital, that is, uh, as well, I should say, comes out at the end as commodity capital and money capital, which is then put back in. So it becomes then again, just another C and M that can then be valorized once again. And that just, he makes this point just to say that it's nature is cyclical. It goes in circles and it starts again from where it uh, started, from where it, from like over and over and over again, uh, essentially ad infinitum. So then he proposes, he says, okay, we have just imagined the process or the circuit of capital from the point M to M prime, where it goes M to buy a commodity, to produce those things, or to put those commodities through production, to then make more commodity, to then make more money. So we have this M production to produce commodity prime and money prime. He says, how about we think of the first point instead as production? So instead, we don't view production as kind of like uh, an interruption of the process of, of what we want to transpire, and that is earning more money, money prime. We instead take production to be the first point, and we say that it all starts with production, where you have production that is going to make money prime, that is going to then, you can then put back into the market to buy more commodities uh, in the form of labor or means of production that are going to end again with production once more in production prime, because you've now, with the money that you've earned, bought more labor, you've bought more means of production to expand production, turning it into production prime. Now to be very clear, in this sequence, we start with production to earn commodities, to sell for money, which we then use to buy even more commodities in the form of labor and means of production, to then put back into production, and here we are left with production prime, as opposed to in the last sequence, being left with money prime. Now in this case, all that we are left with is reproduction. All that the sequence tells us is that production begets more production. It is just reproduction on an extended scale. So after the production process, in this case, this first production process that starts the cycle, what is going to be produced is commodity prime or commodities and money that is going to be comprised of the value that went into it. That is the complete and total value of the means of production, of raw materials, all the cost of all those things, plus labor, plus surplus value. Now, during that process, when all of the, when this production process has been transformed into these costs embodied in a, in a commodity that are sold for money, then the capitalist has a choice. Either they can say, oh, I'm going to put part of this back into uh, production to expand it, or I'm just going to spend it on stuff that I want on my yacht or my uh, private jet or uh, servants or whatever. Now that doesn't actually add to productive capital. So it is in capitalism's interest when we think about it in terms of P to P prime, that sequence, that circuit, that it's going to try and expand production in order to make it more uh, profitable for them at the end of the day, to make it more efficient so that they can earn more capital and then expand more and, and so on. 
But of course, if we start with the process of production in this cycle, we think that production begins at all, then we are confronted with a problem because where does the initial money come from unless it has itself, it was already there? And how do they actually pay for the labor that will go into production? How do they actually pay their laborers? And this would also explain as well why uh, payment for labor always happens after the fact. For anyone that works a job, you know that you're paid uh, depending on the cycle, but you're probably paid every two weeks. So you start a job and you work for two weeks without getting paid. You don't have you don't have anything until you've worked those two weeks or a week, whatever the cycle is, wherever you live. So you've worked two weeks without getting paid. That gives the production process time to actually sell their products or whatever they're doing, a service or whatever, to earn money to then pay retroactively the workers that have worked for them. And of course, there are certain risks involved here where the capitalist might not actually be able to sell the products that they're making for what they've cost them. And so they aren't going to have enough to actually pay the workers who've already worked for them. And this is just one of the tendencies of capitalism to uh, anticipate more than will actually be given back to them. And so people at the end of the day, the majority are going to be screwed over. And this will lead to crises and, and catastrophes and collapses that will then uh, lead to uh, an overabundance of things that people can't buy. And eventually it, it will uh, kind of equal out once again. And then it'll lead to another crisis or catastrophe. And we'll talk about this more toward the end of the book. But in any case, he's introducing this tendency of capital to uh, propel itself to these crises. So for every dollar that isn't spent back into production, it is just money that is kept, for example, put into a, a savings account or something. It forms what Marx calls a hoard. I don't know, maybe other economists before him are calling it this as well, but in the English translation here, they call it a hoard, which is to say that it is an amount of money that isn't being used productively. Although it might be used and saved up to eventually be used productively. Let's say the capitalist has their eye on a new machine that is going to cost them $1,000, whatever it'll cost, you know, just an example. They might need to wait or run through a, many different production cycles or turnover periods in order to earn enough sur through surplus value to then buy that machine. And here we have again this promise of the future of delivering the goods. But of course, there's a lot of risk associated with that. What if the machine goes up in price? Or what if you aren't actually able to cover the costs of the other things that you think you've calculated just because you're hoarding this money in terms of, uh, of cost? What if you, because you're hoarding this money instead of putting it into production when you can, you are then uh, uncompetitive on the market and you lose, uh, people aren't buying your products and then you get screwed over in the end. There, there's so many variables here that are going to potentially lead to crises, potentially lead to collapse to um, going bankrupt or, or what have you. But then again, this hoard can be used productively to some extent. It can be used to maybe anticipate disturbances in the production process. Let's say a machine breaks prematurely or um, or there's like a, a natural catastrophe that uh, makes you have to pay a lot of repairs for your buildings, whatever. This hoard serves that function as well then. But the problem is navigating the distinction between what should be uh, put in a reserve fund as a hoard and what should be put into productive capital. Because if capitalists approach the issue as being one of having more money, that is more money in reserve, 
then there is no incentive among capitalists or very little incentive to actually be buying things because in order to buy things, you have to dig into your reserve fund. Now, he resolved this in the first volume of Capital by saying that it is the very nature of capitalism to encourage this reserve fund, this hoard, to be spent with the promise that it is going to make more for you at the end of the day. But anyways, just to be clear, we're still talking here about that second stage of P to P prime. Now, this is where he considers another possibility. So instead of M to M prime, instead of P to P prime, he says, well, what about if we think about the circuit instead as commodity, as the commodity capital circuit, that is as C prime to C prime, instead of as C to C prime or M to M prime or P to P prime, we say the capitalism actually starts as though it has already been going on forever, as though it has already been uh, in the works to produce a valorized commodity, a commodity that, whose value has been uh, kind of increased. Then we go from there. That is going to earn us money prime. That is going to go into production prime. That is going to give us more money and uh, commodity at the end or commodity and then money at the end. Now, this leaves room for that kind of mysterious paradox here of capitalism always presupposing itself. It always anticipates itself and seems to have a history that extends beyond or earlier than its own history. But the issue here, again, with focusing exclusively on this one, on this stage, is to uh, erase the production process as being the originary point or money as being the originary point. So with this, he says, we have these three possible outlooks, three possible ways to look at the circuit of capital, either as uh, a process from money to money prime or production to production prime or commodity prime to commodity prime. We have these three different ways of looking at it. He says instead, we need to, we need to look at them all as being equally, um, almost the starting point and equally the sequence of capital. Now, in thinking about it in these ways, we have abstracted it from other possible circumstances like a natural disaster or a revolution in terms of uh, technology, a technological revolution that introduces new tech, uh, new machinery, whatever. We've, we've only been thinking about the circuit of capital abstractly. So hypothetically, let's say there's a technological revolution and suddenly production becomes much cheaper because more can be made with uh, the same cost of the machinery, for example. So one of the results of this, to consider it a little bit more concrete, concretely, is that the capitalists will just hoard up extra profit that they make uh, because they'll earn a lot more. Or the production process will just expand. That is, they won't have just hoarded it. They will have put it back into production to expand it. Or a larger reserve of raw materials will be built up. You know, there's any one of these possible uh, outcomes of a potentially real-world development that he wants to just briefly entertain here to ground himself in the real world. And then if there was a, the opposite case where production suddenly became a lot more expensive, then we can anticipate the opposite will happen. The capitalists will have less money to reserve, to put into their hoard. Their, uh, their enterprise won't grow. It might actually shrink. Um, they will have fewer raw materials and so on. Now, what characterizes this mode of production, the capitalist mode of production from previous ones, like a bartering economy, uh, but not in contrast to a, a simple uh, money money uh, economy, because the money economy kind of anticipates this, whereas bartering is just a total different system altogether. Uh, but what characterizes capitalism really in relation to these other systems 
or in relation to a natural bartering economy, is that uh, it transforms everything into a possible commodity. It transforms labor, most importantly, into a commodity, a thing that can be bought and then sold for uh, more expensive or put to work to make something that is more expensive uh, than it costs to actually acquire that labor. So the actual breakdown of a working day or of the production process has to be qualified. So within the entire circulation of capital, that is, it's moved through production, then to the market, and then back to production, it is comprised of two kinds of time. Either it is in production in a factory, uh, or whatever, being, being worked upon, being put to work, or it exists in uh, the market in which it is taking up what's called circulation time. Now, production time and circulation time comprise the entire time of capital, its entire turnover cycle between the time that uh, it is initially acquired, the money is acquired or, or on hand, between the time that that is on hand to the time that it is valorized, that it becomes M prime or P becomes P prime or C prime becomes C prime, just, you know, any one of those things. That is comprised entirely of production time plus circulation time. So these can be further broken down. So in the case of production, production can be broken down into working time versus uh, all the rest of time within production. So for every minute that actual work is being done to valorize something by labor, labor is working to valorize a thing, it is uh, working time. But let's say we're dealing with uh, something like wine, where wine is worked on for a set period of time, the working time, but then it has to be stored and just sits uh, idle for months, years maybe. That is part of the production time, but nothing's being worked on it. It is therefore outside of working time, but still belongs to production time. So within production time, you have working time and then idle time, let's call it. Or we could think of it otherwise. Let's say you have a, a company that turns off all its machines at night. So its working time is going to be the 16 hours between, let's say, um, I don't know, uh, 10 a.m. and uh, 12 or 2, 2 a.m. Uh, between 10 a.m. and then 2 a.m. is 16 hours. I think my math is right. And then the eight hours that those machines are off, production time is still clicking, clicking, ticking, but they aren't actually working, so it doesn't belong to working time. So it is, in, it is in the capitalist's interest to minimize this idle time. Now, you can't really do that with like, with like wine. Uh, wine needs to sit to make good quality wine. It needs to sit for a while. Maybe a chemical can be introduced that catalyzes or that speeds up that process. Who knows? Uh, but it is in the capitalist's interest, nevertheless, to minimize that time if they can. So... Instead of turning off the machines at night, they instead just hire laborers to work at night as well. So the machines are never off. So production time is comprised uh, or they maximize working time within the production time cycle or process. So the closer these two are together, that is, or I should say, the more working time is actually occurring in relation to idle time, then, uh, or the closer that working time comprises the totality, the total of production time, the maximum possible valorization will have occurred. Because when the wine is sitting in a barrel somewhere just aging, it isn't actually accruing value, if we understand value in terms of labor. So similarly, in the entire movement of capital, we have to consider as well circulation time. 
Now this is, this is time that is completely outside of production time. So let's say you make a thing, uh, a product, then you have to ship it and then hope that somebody will buy it somewhere or you put it on a shelf somewhere, you're waiting for somebody to buy it. This is all circulation time in which that thing is not earning you any more money. It's not gaining value. Instead, it is actually costing you because you have to pay for transport. Maybe you have to pay for um, the cost of storing it somewhere on a shelf. You know, you're going to be paying for lighting, heating of that place. You're going to be paying for the building or at least covering the cost that the merchant or the seller has to, uh, has to put in for that. You have all these factors to consider. So in circulation time, in distinction to, in contrast to production time, the thing isn't accruing any more value. And so like with idle time within production, the capitalist wants to minimize circulation time. So the dream is that a product that they make is going to be bought the moment that it's made and that the person is just going to appear the moment that it's made, grab it and then leave. You know, they pay for it and then leave. So the circulation time is ostensibly minimized. It can, it can never be zero because we always have to factor in some kind of shipment uh, time, some kind of time of, of a transaction and so on, but it comes infinitely close to zero, like, uh, like an asymptote in, for any math nerds out there. Now, before Marx, other political economists believed that circulation time was where value actually was earned because that's where money comes from. But that is only the representation of the value that has been accrued in the production cycle. It does not itself, that is the circulation time, the circulation process does not itself create value. It just represents the value that was made in the production process. And these other political economists who said otherwise, who believed that circulation time was the source of value, all that they were really doing was this thing called commodity fetishism. They were subtly saying that uh, a commodity isn't actually comprised of labor that goes into it. It is only comprised of its value within the market. So that erases the real labor that went into it. It erases as well then the struggles of the labor that went into it. It erases as well then the exploitation that went into producing the thing. So in other words, or another way to look at circulation time is the process that the commodity is turned into money, and then that money is turned back into a commodity that can be used productively. So this is the entire span of all the transactions that have to occur on the market. And the maximum time of, um, of a given product circulation time is however long it'll take to spoil. So in the case of food, it might just be a few days uh, before it spoils, it goes bad. Whereas in the case of a chair, potentially it'll take years and years and years and years before it goes bad. But in any case, these things have to be considered. They have to be factored in, in order for the capitalist to know what exactly they're up against in terms of the cost of circulation time. And so to cover the cost of circulation, workers need to exploit be exploited even more than they already are. And the more that circulation expands with like a global market where shipment needs to happen like overseas across oceans, then more money is going to need to be allocated to circulation, which means that less money is going to have to be paid to workers in relation to what they are earning the capitalists. So more exploitation is going to need to occur. Now, in terms of the capitalists own ownership of wealth in, in, in a capitalist economy, it will be comprised of productive capital, the entire means of production that they have their individual funds that they're probably spending on their own things they enjoy, 
and then the commodity capital that they have, the things they are producing, and their, therefore their values. So there is a relationship between these three things, that is between productive capital, the means of production, their individual funds, and the commodity capital they produce. So these three things have a relationship where if one increases, another, both others, might decrease, or some kind of permutation of that, of that sequence. So if more money has gone into productive capital, that means there's going to be less for the capitalists to spend on their own funds, on their own enjoyment, the things that they want, that they're going to spend on unproductively, and then they might have less in terms of commodity capital as well, and so on. So the entire stock of a capitalist here can be comprised of the things they own, their their house, that you know the uh, industry they have, the buildings they use. All of this comprises their wealth. Uh, including, you know, the labor they're employing and so on. Now, before Marx, with someone like Adam Smith, he believed that stock was peculiar to capitalism. He said that there needed to be stock in order for more stuff to be created. There needed to be stuff for more stuff to be created. But Marx says that's kind of naive, because that only understands stock as like a stock of raw materials. It doesn't include stock as being uh, already existing productive labor, already existing means of production, or like buildings and so on. And then just to mention it, there are other political economists like someone named uh, Lalor, I think that's how it's pronounced, who thinks that capitalism is actually the system that will put an end to stock. And the reason that he believed that was because capitalism wants to be efficient. It wants productive labor to be the primary mode of, uh, of labor. And stock implies idle labor. Stock implies that things are just existing, probably in a warehouse, and aren't being used productively, which is not in the capitalist's interest. Now, Marx says, very much like his criticism of Adam Smith, that this also only implies to a very narrow idea about what stock is, as being like raw materials or products being made of toys in a warehouse that have just been piling up. Instead, stock comprises so much more than that. But nevertheless, stock in terms of things being produced. Let's say uh, a capitalist makes a bunch of chairs that aren't selling. These chairs are gonna cost them more and more money as they sit on the shelf because they have to, they have to be paying for um, the lighting of the place, like I said, heating, maybe the uh, building itself, employees to manage that stock to you know sit around until someone's ready to buy it. But the capitalist or the seller can't actually increase the prices of those things, those chairs that have been sitting on the shelf for 10 weeks or 10 years, let's say, hypothetically, because they can't be competitive then, because someone down the road maybe made a chair yesterday, and they're going to sell it for the price of all the costs of the means of production. They aren't going to need to factor in this 10 years of uh, the cost of the building, of the uh, labor, of the you know people managing the stock, you know heating, lighting, and so on. So the capitalist who has stock sitting around for 10 years is going to get kind of screwed at the end of the day because they have to only charge as though it wasn't sitting on the shelf for 10 years. Otherwise, they're going to get undercut by their competitor. But interestingly, in all of this, he says that the cost of uh, transportation, like with truck drivers maybe or with uh, ship operators, whatever, actually adds value to a thing. It needs to be factored in to the uh, end product. So like all other productive labor, as it increases in efficiency, its products will decrease in value because more can be made and therefore more or, or less value is going to be spread out over more products. So that means then uh, as maybe transport gets more efficient, 
we see that actually be affected, be actually um, represented in the price of the thing at the end of the day. So the interesting thing is about this, this transport thing is that it is essentially productive labor. In the circulation sphere, it is it is kind of the only, I think, the only example of productive labor in that process of circulation. It is, in Marx's words, the continuation of a production process within the circulation process and for the circulation process. And that is because there's real human labor going into it. You have someone driving a truck or uh, moving uh, things around before it actually arrives to the market and so on. And that pretty much wraps up part one here. So next episode, we're going to cover the first half of part two titled The Turnover of Capital, which is going to be some repetition, but I've, I'm, I've tried to minimize repetition here in order to just get the key points. And then the third part that I do is going to cover the second half of part two. And then the fourth part is going to cover the entirety of part three, and then we'll be done. Uh, so yeah, if you listen this far, uh, let me know if there's anything I excluded that I shouldn't have. I would love to hear about it or anything I got wrong. I would love to hear about it as well. If you like what I did, like, share, subscribe, uh, and to see like hundreds of videos that I already have on YouTube and podcast form and to see many more to come. And yeah, uh, on that note, take care.